This week in the Dan Cave, let's talk some baseball. As the MLB playoffs are in full swing and we get a clearer view of the American League landscape, let's do a little Mariners reset, a refresher on why they're rebuilding and what might come next, a sort of off-season primer, if you will. And we'll play the cop game. Do the Mariners have their own version of Tampa Bay Rays budding star Willie Adames in their system? And is it possible that Jared Kelnick is the next Juan Soto? We'll check in on the Seahawks and the NFC West. A big game this weekend between the Rams and 49ers. Some of you are confused as to who to root for. You shouldn't be. I'll make that crystal clear for you. Strap in. Dan Cave next. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vienz. Good morning, everybody, as I take this. Anyway, it may be evening or night for you. Welcome back to the Dan Cave, episode 55. So I guess you could call it the uh, Brian Bosworth episode. Uh, thanks for tuning back in again. Appreciate the support. Um, talked a lot of Seahawks the last couple of weeks for good reason with the Thursday night game and the big win over the Rams. Both episodes last week, uh, pre and post game, uh, were pretty much 100% Seahawks centric. So thank you for those of you who tuned in and the numbers were good. Uh, last time recording an episode here at the inaugural Maple Valley Dan Cave Studios, making the move this weekend to uh, Renton. Be a little nicer setup. Uh, should be able to do some more video um, in the new location. I don't know uh, on the YouTube channel, I don't know that I'm going to do full video versions of each episode because sometimes... I kind of cut these and chop them up and edit them, especially in those episodes where I um, insert um, some quotes and, and audio uh, from players and coaches to go back and then edit all that in video form would just would take a lot of time. So what I may do is is just kind of take the best 10 or 15 minutes of each episode and, and sort of dress it up a bit and throw that on the YouTube channel just to give you a, a little bit... Uh, something a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more engaging um, to view. That is, if you consider me dynamic and engaging, and maybe you won't, <laughs> maybe video is a bad idea, but um, I think that's the next logical step for the show, and uh, that'll get started after this weekend. So uh, it's my birthday this weekend. I'll be spending my birthday weekend moving, which is awesome. Um, really excited about the move, though, and... Um, the Seahawks will be taking on the Cleveland Browns, 10 a.m. kickoff on Sunday. Um, we'll talk about that game in a minute. But baseball is on my mind. And these playoffs, I hate the timing of the beginning of the playoffs because it came, you know, during a time when the Seahawks were playing a really important Thursday night game. And then there's, um, you know, the Sunday games and, and all the Sunday NFL. So I didn't really watch the first few games of each series very closely. But now I'm now I'm locked in and it it's been a really great postseason so far. And I think it really gives us sort of a a picture frame, if you will, to view the current state of the Mariners and where it fits in with the rest of the landscape in baseball and particularly the American League. And so I kind of want to just do a little bit of a little bit of a recap. Um, sort of set the stage for 
where the American League is right now, where the Mariners fit into that, why they did what they had to do, and then we'll take a little bit of a look at some of the things they can do this winter. Um, I'm always torn this time of year, even in a normal year for the Mariners, because while I love playoff baseball, I love the do-or-die nature of it. I love the fact there's no clock. It's unique to everything in sports. I love Game 5s and Game 7s. We've got two Game 5s tonight. Um, It it doesn't get a whole lot better than that. Um, But also, you know, the the really diehard Mariner fan kind of nerd side of me is like, okay, let's just get these playoffs over with. Let's get through the World Series so we can get on with the offseason. Because unlike in the NFL, in baseball, things start to happen really quickly. In fact, I believe it was November. Early December, was it late November? Uh, I think it was November when DePoto pulled the trigger last year on the Mike Zanino trade to Tampa Bay. And that was really kind of the first sign publicly that we had been given uh, at which direction the Mariners were going to go. But let's take a look at how the American League shook out. So we had the wild card game between the Tampa Bay Rays and the Oakland A's. And if that game alone didn't give you an indication of how how inspired Jerry DePoto's decision was last year um, to do what he's doing with the franchise, then, then I don't know what to tell you. Tampa Bay had 96 wins. Oakland had 97. 162-game schedule. The most grueling, the most difficult schedule in all of sports when you look at how many games are played, how long the season is, and how few playoff spots there are available for good teams. You can say... 82 games in the NBA and the wear and tear of running up and down the court for those guys is more grueling physically. But how many teams in the NBA make the playoffs? All the good teams are rewarded. No one is ever left out of the playoffs in the NBA where there's any debate or any talk of how they got screwed. I think the NFL is similar. You know, every year... There's a team or two that's a nine and seven or a ten and six team that finished really strongly. You could make a case that boy they'd be really scary in the playoffs, but not many. I think didn't Arizona win ten games a couple years ago and, and fail to make the playoffs? But it's it's so hard to make the postseason in baseball. And and this in the American League this year was your reward for winning 96 games. You got one game just to try to get five more. The Oakland A's won 97 games, overcame some injuries, had a fantastic season. They got one game and they're out. The Indians won 93 and didn't make the playoffs because the Twins won 101 and 93 wasn't good enough to get them into the wild card. Remember last year when the Mariners won 89 didn't make the wild card? How do you think the Indians feel this year? 
So that is why Jerry DePoto decided to pull the trigger on a rebuild. He saw this coming. You know, good general managers in any sport, you don't just look at your own team, your own organization, self-scout, you hear that term a lot, but you look at the landscape. You look at the other teams that are out there. What what other teams are doing? And you try and think a year ahead, two, three years ahead. I think the Seahawks did some of this the last couple of years. They saw how good the Rams had gotten. And they decided two years ago was the time to take a step back. And you look at how they've addressed some of their personnel on defense and some of their philosophies on defense. And I think it was in direct result to, to what's happening offensively up and down the rest of the NFC West. That You see things like that. I'm not going to go through it in its entirety of the argument on, on what they're doing and why I think they should have done it in the first place and why I've wanted them to do it for a long time. Either do a little work on your own, look into it yourself, or go back and listen to episode number 40 because I lay it all out. And what I laid out was the argument that if they had decided to quote-unquote go for it one more time, which many, many Mariner fans, and maybe even some of you listening, preferred them to do. I've had some really, really spirited debates with people on Twitter. Some of them don't last long because they're, they just... I'm trying to debate people that are unarmed, if you know what I mean. They have no leg to stand on. Uh, they're just they're just speaking through emotion, just because they they just want to win so that they can brag about their team. But I've had some really really good decisions too, or or, or debates too, with people on Twitter that that stand firm in their belief that Depoto should have hung on for one more year. There was enough talent there. Nelson Cruz, Robinson Cano. James Paxton, Edwin Diaz, kept the band together and tried to compete for one more year. Here's the Reader's Digest version of why that was a bad idea. And again, I go into detail in episode 40, including I look at some hypotheticals of some specific players that we may have added uh, through free agency to help in some areas that needed to be addressed to try and get up maybe into the 95 win territory um, and and how that might have played out. But here's, here's the elevator pitch. If you had kept that roster together as it was, Mike Zanino behind the plate, Robinson Cano at second base or first base or wherever you wanted to play him, uh, if you want to play D Gordon every day at second, maybe you would have kept him at first. Nelson Cruz is your DH. Kept James Paxson in the rotation. Edwin Diaz is your closer. Is that a 97-win team? Or a 96-win team? If you really believe that that team was going to win seven more games this year, then I'm pretty sure that part of your argument is that the entire 25-man roster would stay 100% healthy throughout the year. There would be no rotation injuries. Paxton would have made 32 starts. There'd be no drop-off in Edwin Diaz's performance. Cano would continue to hit as he historically has. Zanino would take a step forward at the plate. 
That'd be part of your case that you'd be making. Well, none of those things happened this year. Cano showed steep decline and was injured for a good part of the year. Diaz took a big step back. Zanino didn't improve at the plate. Paxton had a typical year. He's good when he was on the mound. Wasn't on the mound enough. He's looking good going into the playoffs. He's pitching well at the right time. But he missed a lot of starts for the Yankees. The only player who played up to the level that you would hope that he would for your scenario, if you believe they should have kept the team together, to have uh, resulted in 96 wins, he was the only guy that played up to that level with the Minnesota Twins this year. And actually just today... I heard John Heyman on MLB Network say that the Twins are going to pick up his $12 million option and bring him back next year at the age of 40. So if that is part of your argument, and all those things did happen, and those guys all played lights out and stayed healthy all year, is that a 96-win team? If you still believe that, then what did that get you? It got you one game. And you also missed out on the opportunity to trade those guys when their value is at their highest. If you had gone for it for one more year, which is the primary argument I get from people who didn't like the rebuild. They weren't saying, never rebuild, stick with this core as long as you can, ride it out. Because I think even the people that believed in keeping the roster together would acknowledge the piss poor state of the Mariners farm system and how it wasn't really going to produce anything on a regular basis, given the talent that was in it last year. And so the one more year argument was the most common argument that I would get. Um, then you'd be sitting here right now looking forward to an off season where it's clear, it would be clear to everybody that a rebuild was necessary. So at least that would be one of the advantages, I suppose, is there would be more of a consensus among Mariner fans. Because I, I think even the most staunch skeptics would have to admit, or most of them anyway, that this would be the year to rebuild. But you'd have Cano coming off a down year, and you wouldn't be able to trade him. Because the only window of opportunity to trade him happened last year when Brody Van Wagenen took over as GM of the Mets. He was the only guy interested in trading for Cano, and it was just because he was trying to make a splash and win in his first year as GM there. So he'd be untradeable. You'd be stuck with four more years at $25 million a year. Diaz trade value would be down. It wouldn't get you someone like Jared Kelenic at this point. Zanino would have little to no trade value. It certainly wouldn't get you a Jake Fraley and a Malik Smith. Paxson's trade value would be diminished because he'd be one year away from free agency and he'd be coming off another year where he missed some starts. So that's where we sit today. And that's why it was the right thing to do at the right time. And then we've talked at length on this podcast about how well that plan was executed over the last year at the minor league level. So now you look at the next step. And ultimately, the reason that Jerry DePoto cites for doing this the way he's doing it is the goal isn't to shoot for the wild card every year. It's to win the division. It's to get 
that guaranteed full series, to get to the divisional series, to get that five-game series. Give yourself a shot to get to the World Series. So you look at the American League West this year and you go, oh, well, the Houston won 108 games. How are you ever going to achieve that? That's not a realistic goal, and you're right. You can't set it as a goal to build a roster to win 108 games. That's just not feasible. It's not rational. It's not realistic. But it is a realistic goal to build a 25-man roster and a minor league system and a payroll structure that can be set up to compete with the Astros and challenge them. Look at it this way. What is... Mariners won two games against the Astros this year out of 18. Do I have that right? That's off the top of my head. So if you get to where you're beating the Astros half of the time, that's you just made up seven games between you and them. The Mariners were good enough to win half of their games against the Astros. Now they're a 101-win team. But there's more to it than that. And Jerry DePoto looked at their championship window. The Astros are, they used to be viewed, I've heard them referred to as a small market team. Go look at the list of U.S. metropolitan cities. Houston is not a small market team. They're a upper mid market team. That should be able to carry a pretty significant payroll. But they're not ever going to be able to compete with the Dodgers and the Cubs and the Yankees and the Red Sox in payroll. Just taking a look at where they've been over the last few years. 2017, their payroll was $132.5 million. That was right in the middle of the pack, pretty much. It was 17th in the league. The last two years, they've had the ninth highest payroll in baseball. 2018, it got up to $158.5 million, And this year, $154.5 million. That's significant in and of itself right there. Because the Astros are coming off a World Series win two years ago. A roster that everybody expected to challenge for the World Series this year. And yet they felt it was necessary to trim some payroll. They let Marwin, Marwin Gonzalez and Evan Gaddis and, and some guys that were key contributors on those teams the last couple of years. They let them walk in free agency. They didn't go out and make a big splash starting pitching signing. They tried to keep payroll a little bit under control. It would also suggest to me that they've extended themselves about as far as they can. That 160, maybe they would go to 170. Anything beyond that might be might be unrealistic. 2020 they already have $148 million committed. They signed Verlander to the two-year $66 million extension. He's on the books for $33 million. Altuve, $29. Zach Granke, who they picked up at the deadline, almost $25 million next year. Brantley, $16. Reddick, $13. Bregman, almost $13. $148 million committed just next year. But here's what's going on. Y'all know Garrett Cole is an unrestricted free agent and is going to sign the biggest free agent pitching contract we've ever seen. He's not even 30 yet. Best pitcher in the American League. 
the last couple of years, really the only other guy you could argue might be in that discussion is his teammate Verlander. Pitching his best baseball down the stretch this year. Has a chance to be lights out in a game five tonight or tomorrow against the Rays. He's going to cash in, and it's not going to be with Houston. They'd love to have him back, but he they can't afford him. There won't be a big market for him, but somebody pretty substantial. I I feel like the Angels are going to make a big impact move. It sounds like they're trying to sign Joe Madden as their next manager. Arnie Moreno is known for opening up the purse strings, trying to make, make up some ground. I think he's ticked off at where they're at. Cole is a Southern California guy, pitched at UCLA. You see where I'm going with this. He's not coming back. Verlander's in his upper 30s. Granke's in his mid-30s. They might be able to count on two more solid years of Justin Verlander. Granke isn't a slam dunk. Remember how poor he was or how poorly he started off last season. Some of the issues he's had in the past. And the Astros don't really have any slam dunk young pitching on the way. Forrest Whitley, widely considered the number one pitching prospect in baseball a year ago. Had some struggles this year in the minors. He's pitching the Arizona Fall League right now. Um, so he's a guy that they think highly of. But we haven't seen it at the big league level yet. But here's where the real impact is going to be made uh, with the Astros. Carlos Correa, 25-year-old shortstop. Made only $5 million last year. That's over. That is over. He's going into his second year of arbitration. He's coming off a three-win season. He's a 21-win player over five seasons. That that bill is becoming due. They're going to have to pay him. And and they may look to sign him to a two or, two or three-year deal to buy out the rest of his arbitration and, and try to save themselves some money before he becomes an unrestricted free agent. And then there's George Springer, who, believe it or not, is 30 now. I still feel like I view him as a young player, one of the young players for the Astros. He's 30 now. He's finishing up a two-year, $24 million deal that they used to buy out his last couple years of arbitration. He's got another year of arbitration. He's ARB4 this year. He'll be an unrestricted free agent in 2021. And guess what? He just had his best season. He had a six-win season. He hit 39 home runs. George Springer is going to get paid this offseason. Or he's going to get traded. The Astros are going to have to, to do some things. They've got a great, great young core. They have a great system. They have a phenomenal organization that's at the forefront of all the modern methods of developing pitchers in particular, but developing position players and scouting them. They're not going to go away. But they're going to fall back to the pack a little bit. They're going to be more vulnerable a year from now, two years from now, than they have been. There are times this year and last year where they look like men playing against boys. They're going to fall back to the pack a little bit. So the timing was right because you weren't going to keep up with those guys. So DePoto has talked about what the next step is. 
in his year-end press conference, and and it was a little disappointing to hear what he what he said because he's a, he's a pretty transparent GM. It's one of the things I really like about him. He's pretty open. He likes to talk about the process. He's not going to show his his whole hand, but in general terms, he likes to talk about the process. And he has said, "Don't look for us to be." shopping through the top of the free agent market this year. We think it's too early. We have a bunch of kids that that made their major league debuts this year or they're close to major league ready that might be major league ready after a spring. We got to let those kids play. So year one was acquiring more key young talent, developing it, mostly at the minor league level. Sounds like year two of this thing is going to be, we're going to let them take their lumps at the major league level. I think you're going to see Kyle Lewis on the opening day roster. I think you're going to see Jake Fraley and Braden Bishop on the opening day roster. And there's a chance for some surprises. I'm not so sure, and I saw a quote from a scout uh, about two-thirds of the way through the season that he said he looks like Logan Gilbert was ready to pitch in the major leagues today. I'm not so sure with a great spring that they might not accelerate his promotion. Maybe not the opening day roster, but we're going to see Logan Gilbert next year. We're going to see a bunch of these kids next year. We're going to see Justin Dunn. We're going to see all those young bullpen arms. They might have to limit some of those guys' workloads, but we're going to see them, and they're going to get a chance to pitch. And then I think 2021 will be the year to be aggressive. But here's the thing. I understand that. And and I hope he's playing it fairly close to the vest. But I have one disagreement with what he's saying. They need to add at least one, what I would call a solid starting pitcher. They're not going to get Garrett Cole. I don't even think they have a shot at Zach Wheeler, who I would love to have. He's going to be too expensive just because there's not a lot of miles on that arm and the upside and the velocity. But a solid starting pitcher. I'm not even talking about a Wade LeBlanc or a Tommy Malone type. Not a retread that you're hoping can patch it together for a year or two. There's a profile I'm looking for. As close to 30 as possible. Someone who's cost is down a little bit, either because he hasn't quite lived up to expectations or coming off an injury or just coming off a down year. And we've all seen it. Depoto loves to pounce on bargains like that. But here's the reason you need at least one more. Because who's in your opening day rotation? Marco, Kikuchi, Sheffield. And that's if Sheffield doesn't have any issues in the spring. If he has a solid spring, he's in the opening day rotation next year. I think he showed enough with how he responded once he was sent down to Arkansas, how he put himself back together, and and how he pitched when he got his call-up late in the year. But assuming those three are good to go, then what? You just bring back Malone and LeBlanc and do the whole opener thing again. LeBlanc's got a $5 million option. I doubt they pick that up. Maybe Malone comes back another year. 
Justin Dunn, if he has a good spring, might might open up in the rotation. But again, these are young pitchers. So if you're not signing a significant starting pitcher in free agency, then you're assuming, A, those guys are ready to go, and B, you've got two or three other guys behind them. I remember very, very clearly when DePoto was hired. One of the first radio interviews I heard with him uh, he was talking about acquiring pitching and how when he first took over in Anaheim, uh, they all, the Angels only had three or four legitimate big league starting pitchers. And he went out and acquired some guys, Tyler Skaggs and a couple other guys, so that they had seven or eight. He feels like your major league rotation needs to be eight deep because guys get hurt. They're not even four deep right now. There isn't really even anyone else in Tacoma that looks like a viable long-term starting candidate prospect. There's some guys in AA, maybe Ricardo Sanchez, LJ Newsom, Penn Murphy. There's a couple guys, but they're fringe guys. And you certainly can't count on them, okay? So you got to sign one of these guys. And the profile, as I said, as close to 30 as possible, hopefully coming off uh, some situation that, that, that mutes their cost a little bit. Some names, Michael Waka from the Cardinals. You know, he's kind of a victim of his own expectations that he set. He was he made such an impact as a rookie and pitching in the postseason. Looked like a future ace, never really lived up to that, but he's been solid and there's still some upside there. And if you've seen anything from the Mariners development staff in the last, in the last 12 months, it's that they seem to be pretty darn good at bringing pitchers in from other organizations and refining their pitch selection, working on a pitch or two scrapping a pitch, adding a pitch. They did it with a bunch of those bullpen cast-offs, and they found some gems, some potential gems. Now I'd like to see them apply that that process to the starting rotation. Michael Pineda is another one. Remember that name? Just traded the Yankees for Jesus Montero, what seems like a million years ago. Uh, had some injury issues, elbow surgery. Was with the Twins last year and was pitching well. The velocity was back. He was having a solid year, and then he got hit with a PED suspension. So he wouldn't be available opening day. But again, another reason why his cost may be a little more realistic. Another blast from the past, Drew Smiley. Had success when he was young, and so he's only 30 now. It feels like he's been around forever. He was terrible with the Rangers last year. In his first year of pitching after Tommy John surgery, he had missed the entire previous year. Uh, he was in the Cubs system, but never pitched for them at the big league level. It was terrible with the Rangers release, picked up by the Phillies, and then he found something. And he pitched pretty well for the Phillies. He'll never be the two that it looked like he was going to be when the Mariners acquired him. But he could be a really solid 180-inning guy that can win games for you and stabilize that rotation at a pretty reasonable cost. And you know what? Kind of owes us. He kind of owes us. Rick Porcello is another one. Made a lot of money for the Red Sox last year. But he's not going to get anywhere near that after a down year. But still, uh, he's at the right age to think there's a couple more bounce back years there. Um, he's got the stuff and the profile that I think the Mariners could work with some things there. Julio Turan is another one that uh, is really interesting to me. There's a lot of talk that the Braves are going to move on from him after this season. Um, they were going to leave him off the postseason roster, then they had an injury. He's on there. 
He's had a really up-and-down season, but was once considered one of the bright young arms in baseball. Um, and he could be available. Tanner Rourke is another one who's 33 now. He's a little older than I would like for this profile. He was traded from Cincinnati to Oakland at the deadline last year. But in five of the last six years, he's pitched 165 innings or more, and his career FIP is just over four, 4.02, basically. Made $10 million last year. I don't know that he'll even get that this year. You know, if you could get him on a two-year, $15 million deal, $18 million deal, I would do that. Jerry says he doesn't want to block his starting pitchers. That's why he doesn't want to mess around with any significant free agent pitching acquisitions. But I think you've got a year or two before you have to really worry about that. Because first of all, to think you're going to block someone is, again, to assume that all these guys blossom and that once it clicks, it clicks for good. They don't have any struggles. They don't have any injury setbacks. Because the next wave... If you assume that Gilbert debuts next year, even in a best-case scenario, in a dream scenario, where Marco and Kikuchi are really solid and Sheffield establishes himself next year, and Gilbert and Dunn also pitch in the big league rotation next year, the odds of all those guys getting through a season without injury or struggle is a pipe dream. Because your next wave behind that is you're talking about this year's draft picks. You're talking about George Kirby, Brandon Williamson, Isaiah Campbell, Sam Carlson, depending on how he looks this year coming off Tommy John surgery. There's four guys with tremendous upside. Four guys to get really excited about. But even if they move as quickly as Logan Gilbert, you're not going to see them until 2021 or 2022. And that's best case scenario. So I'd really like to see them uh, sign a starting pitcher. And and ideally, too, you know, sign a, sign a guy like I'm talking about on a two-year deal. And then sign one of those injury bounce-back guys that the A's have lived on for the last couple of years, the Brett Anderson types that are only going to get a $1 million or a, a, a one-year deal, maybe even a minor league deal with a big league invite. Add one of those guys, too, and hope you can hit. And maybe bring a guy like Malone back. Because he was pretty solid. But uh, the playoffs have been amazing. And this should get you excited about trying to build for this. Again. Just if you're still clinging to some of those old biases against Mariners ownership. Try try your hardest to shed those. And just enjoy this process. Because first of all, it's not the same owners. It's not the same organization. not the same GM. They're doing it differently. I, I denied it for years because I just didn't want to believe it. But it's true. Former Mariner ownership was, was... They wanted no part of a process like this because the thought of losing even one ticket sale scared them because it was a business investment for them. It wasn't it wasn't a project of passion like it is for John Stanton. So, give him credit for taking this risk and taking this hit with attendance. Also a little side note, I'm seeing Mariners merch at at Fred Meyer and other sporting goods stores for 50% off. 
take advantage of that. This is your offseason to stock up on Mariners gear for sure. But these playoffs have been amazing. The Rays last night force a game five with the Astros. Cards, Braves, Nats, Dodgers, game five. Uh, both have game fives tonight. This is Wednesday as I'm recording this. And a couple of guys have really jumped out. You're seeing the young stars, right? I mean, there's some issues with what Ronald Acuna Jr. is doing in Atlanta, but what he's doing at the plate is amazing. And I kind of wanted to look at, are there any comps? Or is there any reason to believe that the Mariners have guys like this that could one day be doing the same kind of thing? Um, Willie Adamas is, is a guy that I wasn't really familiar with. But what he did last night for Tampa Bay, hitting a home run off Verlander, uh, big home run, and then the relay throw, really the key key play of the game, the relay throw to get the runner at home when the Astros were threatening in the middle innings last night. Um, he's such a cool story because he was part of the trade that sent David Price to the Detroit Tigers. And what the Rays got back in that trade was Nick Franklin, former Mariner. Remember him? He actually came. It was a three-way trade with Seattle, if you recall. Seattle got Austin Jackson in that deal. But it was Nick Franklin and Drew Smiley. It's, it's funny. A lot of names a lot of names tied to the Mariners were in that deal. Uh, and this kid, Willie Adamas, who was a young minor leaguer at the time. This trade was in 2014. And uh, on MLB Network this morning, they were even giving uh, Mad Dog Russo a lot of crap. They pulled up an old tweet from him in 2014 saying, Drew Smiley and Nick Franklin is all you get back for David Price? What, are you kidding me? He didn't even mention Willie Adamas. And for good reason. It took Adamas, and I think I'm pronouncing that last name properly. I hope I am. It took him a while to get through the minor leagues. He followed kind of a traditional slow and steady rise through the Rays minor league system. He had over 2,000 plate appearances in the minor leagues. But in 152 games this year, or he, he got about a half season in last year, 85 games last year, 152 this year. He has 30 home runs at the big league level he's hitting. Uh, his OPS is 754 over a year and a half. And he looks like a guy who's who's coming on, who's becoming, like I called him, a budding star. And he was an afterthought in a trade. And so that got me thinking, is there somebody like that in the Mariners system? Somebody that Jerry got back in one of these deals that no one's talking about that could end up having this kind of an impact. My first thought was, well, all of these trades got so much discussion, I don't think anyone slipped under the radar. You know, Jake Fraley would have been a candidate to be that guy. But I think he he turned it on so dramatically this year um, in his first year in the Mariners system, got all the way to the majors before an injury kind of set back his development um, that he doesn't qualify anymore. But I, I remembered seeing a tweet from a couple days ago from Bernie Pleskoff, um, who's a former uh, Mariner and Astros scout and I think he lives in Arizona because he goes to AFL games a lot. And he watches spring training. And he tweets about some deep, deep, deep prospects and what he sees firsthand. And he tweeted this the other day. Uh, on a day where Jose Caballero hit a home run, um, he said, Mariners outfielder Jose Caballero has shown a very strong and accurate arm in left field today. 
That type of arm wins baseball games. And it caught my attention because I thought, outfielder? It took me a second to place the name, and then I thought, oh yeah, that's him. But I thought he was a utility infield guy. Jose Caballero is the guy, he's the player that we received from the Arizona Diamondbacks in the Mike Leak trade. And uh, all the cynical fans thought, oh, that's all we got. As if Mike Leak was going to get us a, a four-star pitching prospect in return. The book on Caballero was, doesn't have any one position that he excels at. Second base was probably his best position. You don't want him playing shortstop every day. Um, but can play third, short, and second. And when I went back and looked at some stuff, um, I did see some people mention that he had played some left field. It sounds like he's playing quite a bit more in Arizona this year. And so to hear a former baseball scout talk about his arm, that a guy who hasn't played very much left field has that kind of arm that can win games, that type of arm wins baseball games. That's what Pleskov said. Because here's the thing about Caballero. Dude can hit, and he has always hit. In his minor league career, just under 800 plate appearances, slash line of 289, 377, 435, 74 walks and 119 strikeouts. I'll say that again. Only 119 strikeouts and 778 plate appearances. He can also steal a base for you. He's got 54 of those and a little bit of pop. 14 home runs in his minor league career. He's got one in the AFL this year. He is a guy that has hit at every level, has defensive versatility, and now um, and now you have a former major league scout talking about how he has an impact arm in the outfield. So I'm not saying he's going to be the type of player that Adamus is, but he's the kind of guy that, that if you overlook him two years from now, he could pop up and be a key part of your ball club. And he was a guy that was an afterthought when he was acquired. Um, again, doesn't have a true position, so he, he projects as a utility guy. Throw him into that mix. If there's one position the Mariners have really fortified their organizational roster, it's utility. You throw him into that mix with Donnie Walton, who made his big league debut in September, Dylan Moore, Tim Lopes. Um, they have some really intriguing guys that profile as utility players. Another thing I wanted to do is I wanted to, to look at some of the young guys because we're seeing those, and we're seeing Major League Baseball start to promote those guys. Some of the young guys that are having tremendous success and carrying it over into the postseason, and one that jumps off the page, jumps off the TV screen is Juan Soto. The Washington Nationals. He he looks like a veteran player in the playoffs, and he's done some pretty spectacular things for them already. Um, the moment is not too big for him. He just looks like a natural. Looks like, looks like a star. He debuted as a 19-year-old last year with the Nationals, and in two seasons now with them, and he's still just he's on the younger side of 20. 56 home runs and a triple slash of 287, 403, 535 in two seasons. Now that's a tough comp to find. And in an, another year, maybe Julio Rodriguez will be a better comp for that. Um, and this guy's an athletic freak, so take some of this with a grain of salt. But it, I just wanted to take a look side by side. So I pulled up Jared Kelnick. 
Soto's 20, Kelnick's 20. Now, Soto debuted at 19, so he was already ahead of where Kelnick was. But the rapid rise we saw from Kelnick this year, starting in West Virginia and finishing in Arkansas, finishing in AA as a 20-year-old, he was at Safeco Field a couple weeks ago during the last homestand to receive a, a minor league award from the Mariners. Got to hang out with the team and had a press conference. And he said his goal is to make the big leagues by next year. I tucked that one away. You know, a lot of kids talk, but is it realistic? Again, Arkansas as a 20-year-old. So Juan Soto in his minor league career, he only played 122 games. In the minor leagues. 453 at bats. 30 doubles, 22 home runs, triple slash of 362, 434, 609. That's insane. That's insane. That's that's how you get called up when you're 19 is you have numbers like that. Kelnick in 173 games. 663 at bats. So he's already spent more time in the minor leagues than Soto did. 41 doubles, 29 home runs, 35 stolen bases, triple slash of 290, 366, 516. I'm not saying that Kellenick's ceiling is Juan Soto because I don't think it is. I think his ceiling is more along the lines of what we saw from Mitch Hanniger in 2018. But I'm saying that when you see signs in the minor leagues that a kid is special, that he's not phased by any level, then there's... There's no limit to how quickly you can push those guys. And I do think it's possible that Jared Kalanick could be that kind of player and we could see him make his Major League debut next year. Enjoy these playoffs and dare to dream. Allow yourself to think about the Mariners being there in a couple years because I'm telling you, if you still don't believe in what they're doing, there's no guarantee that I'm right. But I believe this was the only way that it could work. Staying the course, doing what they were doing before was never going to lead to the possibility of a World Series in the next three to five years. I'm not promising you this this process will lead to that, but it's it's the only way that it might. So enjoy it because if, if you see any one common theme throughout these playoffs, it's how exciting a team can be when it's when it's full of young players, young players that came together and in most cases came up together. And the Mariners have made a concerted effort this year to help some of those guys bond and bring them up together. It's going to be fun when it starts to pay off. Let's talk some football. Uh, Seahawks coming off that big win against the Rams uh, a Thursday ago. And, and usually... You know, when you talk about statement games, um, that can be overrated a little bit. I used that term in previewing the Rams game. I thought it was a chance for them to make a statement that they are going to be in this NFC West race, and they did that. They can make another statement of a different kind Sunday. And as much as, for the most part, I believe a win is a win, and I don't care how pretty and how ugly they are, as long as you get a win. If you get 13 wins to get yourself a bye, I don't care how those wins happen. In fact, you can even make an argument that a, that a team that wins ugly all the time is is more dangerous because it figures out a way to win when it do, doesn't have its best fastball. But Sunday, you're playing a team that's down on the mat. You're playing a team in Cleveland that's coming off 
an embarrassing loss against the 49ers. Where the Niners took you to the woodshed and your number one overall pick franchise quarterback is playing worse by the week and your offensive line looks putrid and got run into the ground by that really good front for the 49ers. If the Seahawks fancy themselves as as a true contender and a team that can take the Rams and the 49ers down to the wire and challenge for this division title, they have to show they can kick this team while they're down. They have to take advantage of how their strengths match up against the Browns' weakness. We have to see this pass rush that Carroll says this week is about to come together. It's about to mesh. He feels like it's almost there. Against that offensive line, with that quarterback's confidence shot like it is, they have to take advantage of that. They have to get to Baker. They can't be the team he gets healthy against and figures it out against. They're coming off a short week. The Seahawks are coming off a longer week. They're healthy. There's no injury issues. They need to go into Cleveland and make a statement. It has to happen. Meanwhile, <laughs> the one thing that scares me is I've had some some nightmares this week. The image of Jermaine Effetti trying to block Miles Garrett. And it'll be interesting to see how the Seahawks choose how they choose to approach that mismatch. We haven't seen as much George Fant as the big tight end and extra tackle this year as we had at times last year. I remember that first game at home against Dallas after they were 0-2 last year, and they came out bound and determined to establish a run, and they pounded it with Chris Carson all day. And I feel like Fant was on the field the whole game. I think this is one of those games where he's going to need to be in there a lot, helping out with Garrett. Don't leave Effetti alone on an island. We're going to talk about him and what they're going to have to do to replace him at some point this season. Um, can't leave him alone. Whatever progress we saw from him last year seems to have stemmed, and he is incapable of blocking Miles Garrett one-on-one in pass protection. So... That's another key I'm looking for Sundays. I really want to see them make some use of George Fant. And I want to finish on this. Huge game in the NFC West now. The 49ers moved to 4-0 off that Monday night game, and people are talking about Super Bowl, whatever. Their four wins have come against the same four teams the Seahawks have beat. A combined record of two and something. Right? The Steelers and the Bengals. Rams are 3-2. So I'm hearing a lot of this. God, who do we root for? Who do we root for? We don't like either of these teams. I don't like the idea of pulling for the Rams or the 49ers, but who do we want to win this game? To me, it shouldn't be a question at all. And this this should answer this question every single time you ever come up with it. It is always better. For the team with the better divisional record to lose. I get it if you think that watching the Rams drop to 3-3 with two divisional losses, one against the Seahawks, might be an advantage. I disagree. I think the 49ers getting a divisional loss to the Rams 
would be more valuable for the Seahawks because it would put them one loss behind the Seahawks in the divisional race. And the Seahawks still have two games to play against the 49ers, one against the Rams. So that's my viewpoint on it. I I get the other side trying to pound the Rams while they're down a little bit, hand them their third straight loss. Maybe things start to break apart there a little bit, give them their second divisional loss, give them a three-game lead in the division, the Seahawks. But I disagree. Really pulling for the Rams in this one. I want to hopefully they'll expose some things from the 49ers. First real good team the 49ers have faced, so we'll really get a true test. I think they're legitimate. I think that the 49ers are good. I'm a little more scared, to be honest, of the 49ers than I am the Rams. That front seven really scares me. And that offense, Kyle Shanahan's play calling now that he has kind of all the bullets in the chamber, especially with Tevin Coleman back, they look really dynamic. Just another reason why I think it would be better for them to get a divisional loss. So Seahawks at Cleveland on Sunday. we got Major League Baseball playoffs going on. Cougs coming off a bye. without a, They don't have a defensive coordinator. Taking on Arizona State this weekend. Husky fans are jumping off bridges because they lost to Stanford. A lot of cool things going on this weekend. We'll have a lot to talk about next week on the Dan Cave. That's going to wrap up episode 55, though. Thank you for supporting the show. Please hit subscribe so you get notifications whenever there's a new episode. Follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. You can email me at thedancaveshow at gmail.com. In my Twitter bio, you can click on a link. Uh, it'll take you to my anchor page where you can leave me a voice message. You can rant, rave, ask me a question. I can put it into the show, feature you a little bit. If you're ever in uh, historic downtown Snoqualmie, Tuesday through Saturday, come by and uh, get a drink for me. I'll make you one of my award-winning old fashions. We can talk some sports. Uh, in the meantime, I just appreciate you listening and hope you continue to do so. So until next week on the Dan Cave, go Seahawks, go Mariners, go Cougs. <laughs>